Some years ago, there was a massive doctrinal apostasy that rocked the worldwide church of God. And many of you who were there remember and have memories of that experience. In the process of a very few short years when that occurred, virtually every doctrine that the church held was rejected, was overturned. The Sabbath was changed. The law of God was changed. The definition of sin was changed. The holy days and how they're observed was changed. The nature of God was changed. The nature of Christ and His sacrifice was changed on every level. All of these and more, everything, it seems, was changed. And there was another doctrine that was overturned at that time, and that was the doctrine of being born again. Being born again. The question is, are we born again? If so, when? Are we born now or at the resurrection? And why does it matter? See, that doctrine was overturned in worldwide, but we continue to hold, in the living church of God, continue to hold to the truth of the matter of being born again. So, what is that truth? Are we born again now or at the resurrection, and why does it matter? This may seem to be just a sort of an academic issue over words, but it actually has very practical application in our life. And it actually dovetails with the holy days, with the plan that God has put into motion. Of course, we'll be beginning that holy day cycle season here, as was mentioned just in a few Weeks in about five weeks. And we'll see how that dovetails as we go along. So let's talk about this today. Uh, for those who may be new, it might be helpful to step through this. Why do we believe what we believe? And also those who are more familiar, it, it's important as well. Because we need to review and continually to reinforce what we believe. So let's talk about that today. Uh, if you want a title, Born Again and Why It Matters. Born Again and Why It Matters. Essentially, when we look at mainstream churches and what they believe about born again, uh, basically they feel like when you're baptized, when you accept Jesus Christ, when you believe on Him, then you are born again. And that is the vehicle for salvation. You're born again at that moment. And that's pretty much the long and short of it. What does the Church of God teach? What has historically been taught under Mr. Armstrong? Let me read from the Mister of the Ages. Page 57 sums it up in one statement, <coughs> statement by Mr. Armstrong. He said this, Finally, in briefest summary, God is a family composed at present of the two persons of John 1, 1 through 4, but with many thousands already begotten by God's Spirit in God's true church, soon to be born into that divine family at Christ's return to earth. So, as I mentioned already, this was overturned by our previous uh, association. In fact, they mocked the idea that I just read, uh, that that was just sort of a quaint a uh, little analogy that a very persuasive advertising man put together. And that is just simply not true. And we'll see that as we go along. Since the, it, it, some of the words and some of the parts of this issue can sometimes be confusing, some of the definitions of Greek words and whatnot and how they apply, and etc., I think it's helpful to nail down what is rock solid and so that we can understand and, and see how the rest fits in. Once you nail down what is rock solid on a potentially confusing issue, it's not confusing at all. 
So let's discuss some basic key points regarding the born-again issue. And again, as we get toward the end, we'll talk about why it matters. It's not just academic. So let's start off with number one. Number one, key points, nail down rock-solid points about this issue. Number one, the Greek word genau means born or begotten. Number one, the Greek word genau means born or begotten. Now, what is this Greek word? If in English transliteration we spell it G-E-N-N-A-O, we know the New Testament was written primarily in Greek, and yet we're reading it in English, right? Uh, So we understand when you have one translation from one language to another, you don't always have a one-to-one exact correlation. You don't always have the, the exact same meaning of a word in the first language and, the, and a, 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 a word that is exactly equivalent in the second language. Oftentimes, you have to have multiple words in one language to uh, make up what one word does in the first. And that's exactly what happens when it comes to the idea of born again. Essentially, when you see the word born in the New Testament, uh, most of the time it's translated from the Greek, genau, this word genau. And we understand that we, we have words like generation, generate, genesis. It's the same concept. It's the beginning. It's a birth. It's the, the origin. Genau occurs uh, 97 times in the New Testament. So what does genau mean? Well, from Strong's Concordance, we read these are how it's used, to beget or to bring forth. To bear, to beget, or to conceive. To procreate properly of the father, but by extension of the mother, figuratively to regenerate. So, the problem with the word genau, if we can say it's a problem, uh, is that the word genau includes the whole process that in English we describe as conception to birth. So the problem is that the word genau can mean begettle, that moment of begettle, that moment of conception. The word genau can also mean the moment of birth. And that's what sometimes causes problems and, and uh, confusion. The point is, whenever we see the word born in the New Testament and it's translated from genau, we should not always assume that it has to be the moment, exact moment of birth. It actually might be just as appropriate and even more appropriate to consider that at the moment of conception. Okay, we'll see this as we go, a number of cases. Another fact we can lay down, number two, number two. Christ was the firstborn from the dead. Christ was the firstborn from the dead. When we start talking about born again and the born again issue, we've, we've got to lay down what is very, very clear. Mr. Ames is, has taught us that for years. Uh, you first start with the simple and then go to the complex, right? You've got, you've got to nail down the simplest uh, part of an issue and not uh, confuse it with the complex. So let's go to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Uh, we read how Jesus, uh, well, let's just, let's just go right straight into verse 15. It says, He, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. 
Now, the firstborn, this word firstborn here, is actually a different Greek word, prototokos. It's not ganal in this case, uh, but it essentially means what it says, the first to be brought forth, the first to be uh, brought forth into life, the firstborn. Again, not complicated, uh, but also it's very profound what we just read here, that Jesus Christ was not just the firstborn, but he was the firstborn from the dead, which means at the resurrection, that he was firstborn at his resurrection. That's, that's, it's talking about a sort of birth into spirit life, isn't it? When he was resurrected. That's a, that's a huge concept. And that concept will cast a long shadow as we go. Notice Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. We see essentially another restatement of this. Revelation 1. And verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first born at what point? At what point in his life? The first born from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ was born, in that sense, into the spirit realm at his resurrection. Now, if Jesus was the firstborn, doesn't it imply that there are later borns as well? Well, absolutely. Let's turn over to Roman, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. If he's the firstborn... Does it imply that he will have younger brothers and sisters? And would not that imply that we also will be born from the dead at our resurrection? Romans 8 and verse 29. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So, some who try to, who try to put down the teaching that the church of God has will say, well, firstborn, it's not, doesn't really mean born first. It, it just, it's sort of like a title of preeminence. It's a title of the one who would be the inheritor, you know, the, 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 the one who would inherit the father's, uh, property, that sort of thing. Yes, that is true, but it also just simply means what it says. It means born first. The first, now sometimes in the Bible, you know, the, the rights and privileges of the firstborn were passed on to someone else if the firstborn disqualified, right? Like in Reuben. But at its basic, most simple definition, it, it simply means the one who was born first. And simply it follows then, and, and it says that, that other brethren will be born later, will be the later borns. It's really not, it's really not complicated. Let's uh, nail down a third rock solid point. Number three, number three. Christ said that we would be born into the kingdom. Jesus Christ said we would be born into the kingdom. John chapter 3 and verse 1. I know we're kind of zipping from passage to passage here at the moment, but I, I just want to give you an overview of what we're, what we're talking about in nailing down some key issues as we start this off. John chapter 3 and verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus, verse 3, answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom 
of God. Now, what an interesting concept that Jesus brought up. Nicodemus hadn't really asked that question, had he? But, but Christ wanted to bring across a point. And he, he brought it up. He started talking about being born again. And unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, first of all, let's, let's stop right there and ask ourselves, can we yet see the kingdom of God in the flesh? Are we yet seeing the king who is Jesus Christ? Are we yet seeing his kingdom being set up on this earth? Not yet. So are we born again yet? It stands to reason that we're not yet because we cannot see it. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He was thinking on a physical plane. Jesus Christ was talking about a spiritual reality. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that is, being baptized and receiving God's Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Interesting. So a moment ago he said you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now he says you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the Spirit. Then he says, verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. How could it be any more plain? You know, Jesus, if there's any confusion at all, nobody's confused about what it means to be born of the flesh, right? What it means to be born the first time. But why is there so much confusion about what it means to be born of the Spirit? We know that when we're born of the flesh, we are flesh. So likewise, when we're born of the Spirit, we're going to be Spirit. Hold your place there for a moment, and let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So we can't see the kingdom until we're born again. We can't enter the kingdom until we're born again. We can't inherit the kingdom until we're born again. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. How could it be any more plain? We're not yet born into the kingdom. We're not yet Spirit. Go back to John chapter 3 and verse 7, and Christ makes it even more plain. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't see them, but you can see the effect of their power. We can't see God, we can't see Christ, but we can see the effect of their power, just like the wind. You can't see wind, but you can see the leaves blowing by the wind, can't you? We're not yet born again. And Jesus was very clear in this passage in John chapter 3, explaining to Nicodemus. Number four, let's keep going. Number four, another rock-solid point of truth about the issue of born again. Number four, the pagans believed they were born again now. The pagans, the ancient pagans, believed they were born again now. Let me read from The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop, page 132. He writes, Now in Babylon, there the new birth was conferred by baptism. In the Chaldean mysteries, the Chaldean mystery religion, before any instruction could be received, it was required, first of all, that a person who was being initiated into the mysteries 
that a person to be initiated submit to baptism. Did you know that there was a baptismal rite in the ancient Chaldean mysteries of Babylon? This baptism was by immersion and seems to have been a rather rough and formidable process, for we find that he who passed through the purifying waters and other necessary penances, if he survived, was then admitted to the knowledge of the mysteries. Aren't we grateful that our baptism isn't that arduous today? You know, the next time Mr. Strain has someone asking for baptism, they may hesitate a little bit. If they if they wonder, are you going to bring me back up, you know, or am I going to have to fight my way back up? No, we don't do that. We We guarantee the person we will bring them back up. But apparently, in this system... There was no guarantee. That, that's pretty pretty amazing. To face this ordeal required no, no little courage on the part of those who were initiated. There was this grand inducement, however, to submit that they who were thus baptized were, as Tertullian assures us, promised as the consequence regeneration and the pardon of all their perjuries. So if they survived, they, they, were, uh, they were born again. And we're not talking about Protestant doctrine here. We're talking about the ancient pagan mystery religions. Isn't that interesting? Now, just to be clear, uh, let's, let's, let me make this assertion that the moment when we are baptized is important. And the moment that we receive God's Spirit is important. In fact, we're going to be observing the Passover, as we heard, in in about five weeks. And that is an annual reminder of the covenant that we've made, isn't it? And we could get nowhere without that first step. We would have no Savior. We would have no forgiveness of sins. We would have no hope. Unless we were baptized, our, our sins were covered, and we received the Holy Spirit at that moment of laying on of hands. So all that I'm talking about is not to diminish that in the least. And we're so thankful for that, but that's only the first step, isn't it? When we acknowledge our relationship and our need for that relationship from our Savior, Jesus Christ, at the Passover, it's only the first step. And then the rest of the Holy Days teach us that as well. So the question is, does the rebirth occur at baptism, at the laying on of hands? And the answer is no, even if the pagans believed it did. The pagans do not uh, set doctrine for our church, do they? William Barclay in his commentary echoes Hislop. He said in his commentary on the book of John, the Greek knew the idea of rebirth and they, the Greeks uh, knew the idea of rebirth and they knew it well. Their hermetic mysteries had as part of their basic belief, quote, there can be no salvation without regeneration, end quote. Apuleius who went through initiation, said that he underwent a voluntary death. Now, again, this is the the ancient Greeks, the pagan Greeks we're talking about. He said that he uh, thereby he attained his spiritual birthday and, as it were, was reborn. Many of the mysteries initiations took place at midnight when the day dies and is reborn. In the Phrygian... Uh, mysteries, the initiate after his initiation was fed with milk as if he were a newborn babe. The ancient world knew all about rebirth and regeneration. It longed for it and it searched for it everywhere. When Christianity came to the world with a message of rebirth, it came with precisely that for which all the world was seeking. End quote. So the errors that the apostate church entered into the the doctrine was just echoing the pagan world around them. Just like in all the other issues like the Trinity and and Christmas and and, uh, not keeping the Sabbath, etc. So again, 
just because the pagans believed in the concept of, uh, of baptism doesn't meet, make baptism wrong, but clearly they had a very, very different concept about born again than what the Bible teaches, and we're seeing that as we go along. Next rock-solid point of truth to nail down in relation to this issue. Number five. I think we're on number five. Uh, number five. The translators believed they were born again now too. The translators believed they were born again too. This is incredibly important. If nothing else in this sermon, please remember this, that our Bibles were translated by individuals who believed they were born again now. The original scriptures are absolutely infallible, aren't they? But there can be slips of the hand, slips of, of, uh, of of the pen, by a scribe, and there can be translations that reflect the bias of the translator and therefore can be wrong. Let's, uh, let me read a little bit from the Catholic, uh, Catholicism answer book to talk a little bit about what the Catholics believe in terms of the born again issue. Because the 1611 translators, the King James translators, essentially believed the same doctrines as the Catholics, just not owing uh, their, their allegiance to the Pope. They, they believed the same doctrines, except they didn't follow the Pope. This is what the Catholicism Answer Book says. Catholics are born again in water and the Holy Spirit. Through baptism we are spiritually born or born again. It is through baptism that we become adopted children of God, hence the notion of being born again. They are very clear that they are born again now. While Catholics believe one does not need to be aware of being born again in order for it to still happen, as in the case of infant baptism, evangelical Protestants believe only a mature person who is able to reason and make adult decisions is able to be effectively baptized. Accepting Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, is the moment of rebirth, moment of rebirth. And the sacrament of baptism merely ratifies that decision according to tradition. So the whole of mainstream Christianity believes that when you, the the, the vast majority of them believe when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are reborn now. Now, let me also make a statement that this is not to put down the fact that there are a lot of people out there who really do sincerely believe that they have made a commitment to Jesus Christ when that thing happens, whatever happened in their life. And it's not to put them down at all. But are they truly born again in the biblical sense? That's what we're asking today. And the answer is no. The answer is no. So, the translators, if they believe they're born again now, and if going back to what we introduced at the beginning, that the word genau can either mean begotten or born, would it not stand to reason that as they're translating the Bible, whenever they have an option, they would pick the born door, right? And they would use that word as opposed to the begotten choice word because they believe they are born now. That's exactly what they did. Let's turn over to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and we'll go through several examples. Let's look at at a few scriptures in this light. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29. There are several passages in in the, the first epistle of John that we're going to look at fairly quickly. Uh, first one is 1 John 2, 29. It says... 
If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now let's stop for a moment and ask what this means, practices righteousness. Is this waiting until the future? Is this waiting until we're in the kingdom? Well, no. We know that we need to practice righteousness right now, don't we? We need to practice now so that God knows we can do it in the future. He's not going to wait until giving us the kingdom and then say, okay, now you can start practicing righteousness. No. We need to practice now. So clearly this is talking about the here and now. He who practices righteousness is born of him. But ask yourself the question. This word born comes from the Greek genau. Ask yourself the question. Why did the translators choose the word born there? Why didn't they use the word begotten? It would have been just as valid from a word definition point of view. Genau can be translated born or begotten. So was it their Catholic Protestant bias which said they were reborn in this life already? Just a question. Let's look at another one. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. 1 John 3 and verse 9. He writes, Whoever has been born of God, again, Genau, does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born, Genau, of God. Now, let's also be clear here. Dr. Meredith uh, used to explain, and Mr. Weston has explained more recently, when it says cannot sin, it, it doesn't seem to imply um, an impossibility of sin. It, when you look at, we look at the whole context of the book, it's talking about practicing righteousness. Rather, what this seems to be saying is that when we receive the seed of life, the, the seed of His Spirit, uh, even while we're physical, it says his, his seed remains in us, then we cannot stay in a state of practicing sin without grieving that Holy Spirit. We cannot stay in a state of practicing sin and expect to be in the kingdom. Remember back in Genesis when Joseph was was tempted. He says, how can I do this great evil against the eternal? He recognized that he could not do what was in front of him, the temptation. doesn't mean that it was impossible for him to do it. He just recognized since he was practicing a way of life, he could not take that step. So that seems to be the same thing that, that this is talking about. We all sin from time to time, which is why we need the Passover, isn't it? Why we need to examine ourselves. Why we need to approach God every year and thank Him and thank our Savior for His sacrifice and for what He did for us. We all sin from time to time and repent, but we don't practice sin. We don't live in a state of practicing sin, God willing. If we are, then that's a problem. And eventually, one or the other, either God's Spirit in us or a practice of sin, one or the other is going to predominate. They can't both coexist forever. So while we must not sin, we cannot sin in that sense if we expect to be in God's kingdom. So, getting back to the translators. Why did the translators choose the word born there even though it's referring to this physical life? Why not the word begotten? It would have been just as appropriate from a word definition point of view. Remember, Ganao can be translated either born or begotten. Was it their Catholic Protestant bias which told them they were reborn now? Let's look at another one. 1 John 5 and verse 4. 1 John 5 and verse 4. He writes, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. 
Born, genau, same word. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Now, we are to be overcoming now, aren't we? We are to be overcoming right now. We aren't going to, to we, we are not to wait until we're in the kingdom to overcome. This is something we must do now. If we overcome, then we will inherit all things. So clearly the context is this physical life right now. So let's ask ourselves a question again. Why did the translators use born instead of begotten? Both would have been fully appropriate from a word definition point of view. Canal can be translated born or begotten. So why born? Was it their Catholic Protestant bias? Catholic slash Protestant bias. It, because it's the same doctrine. Was it that bias that made them choose the word born? Just asking the question. I know I'm being a little redundant here. You know, I, I speak as a fool. I hope you don't take that literally, but you know, I, I am being a little redundant here because we need to ask the question. As each of these come up, why did they translate it the way they did? Because of their bias. And where did they get their bias? Where did the mainstream apostate church get its bias? From the pagans. From the ancient pagan traditions. Let's look at another one. 1 John 5 and verse 18. 1 John 5.18, it says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who is born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Clearly referring to this life, that, that we must keep ourselves, we must guard ourselves, we must stay on the path. And when we do that, how encouraging is that? That the wicked one cannot touch us. It's only when we get off the path, it's only when we get away from the flock and away from the shepherd that he can impact us in a greater way. When we're close to God, when we're close to the shepherd, he says the wicked one uh, does not touch him. So, again, why did the translators choose the word born here? It could have been, it would have been just as permissible from a word definition point of view, to use begotten. Was it their Catholic slash Protestant background and bias? Just asking the question. Now, one more thing. Let's turn over to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1, because this is an interesting passage that shows us a little bit of a different element. It says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born, genau, of God and everyone who loves him who begot begot comes from genau also loves him who is begotten same word genau of him three times the word genau is found in that verse three times and it's translated three different ways born begot and begotten so the first instance where it's translated born is what we would expect from the King James translators, right? Because we saw all the other places that they, they showed that they feel like they're born now, right? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. But the same word genau shows up the next, in the next phrase two more times. Everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. That's interesting. The same word, genau. But here they translated it begot or begotten. This shows us a couple of things. Number one, they really did have the option to translate it begot or begotten. In, in all of these cases, right? Because they showed it right there in, in chapter 5 and verse 1. They showed they really do have the option. If they wanted to, in all of these cases, they could have translated it begotten, just like there. It's only in this verse they were forced to. Why is that? If you look carefully, it says, Everyone who loves him who begot, and also loves him who is begotten of him. What What is the... 
the sense of it there. Begot is the action of the Father. Begettle is the action of the Father. Birth is something that happens involving the mother, right? So with the tense and the, the phraseology, they could not put here everyone who loves him who borned or who birthed, uh, you know, also loves him who is birthed by him. No, it wouldn't have made any sense. And it's not describing the action of the father, because clearly it's talking about the father here. So the point is they, they were forced to in that instance. But it shows us they truly did have the option of using begotten or born. Do we see how much the bias of the translators slipped into the English text in the matter of born again? And why, why is this important? Because, you know, as we just read over this, it's easy for us to just gloss over it and think, well, you know, not sure. Well, what does that really mean? What does it really? Well, it says born, you know, born now, born of God. But, you know, I must be born. It's easy to assume some things just because of the English. In the final time we have, let's look at two reasons why it matters. Is this just a academic, semantic argument that um, commentators, you know, argue about whether we believe we're born now or at the resurrection? Does it matter? Well, it does. Reason number one why it matters. We need to grow. We need to grow. We heard a little bit about this in the sermonette by Mr. Dawson. Appreciated his, his focus on growth. Because as the holy days come upon us, that is going to be one of the things that we talk about a lot, isn't it? Growth. And what we're here for. Specifically the days of unleavened bread. And the growth that we need to have as we progress spiritually. We know in the physical realm, a physical embryo or fetus has the potential to become fully grown, but it is not yet fully grown, isn't it? It can be aborted. It can be miscarried. In fact, if a fetus is, if time is going on and a fetus is not growing, or a fetus is, is growing at, at the wrong rate. It usually, let's say, part of the body is growing and other parts are not. It's usually a sign there's something wrong. If there's no growth in that baby in the womb, there's, there's something wrong. And it causes distress to the parents. I know of, of a case where of parents who went through this where the baby was in the womb and was not growing properly. And um, they wound up going to some experts because it clearly was there was something wrong. And the expert was, took measurements and told them, yes, th- th- this is, a, this is a, a, a crisis. And here are your options. And frankly, abortion was one of them. And they said, no, no, we're not going to have any of that. This person, this family was in the church. They were anointed, and the baby started growing normally. And this expert was actually distressed now because she had put them into uh, distress, and she said, I never get it wrong. I'm not sure what happened. My measurements were correct. I don't know what happened. And they said, it's okay. We know what happened. God healed that baby. But sometimes a baby isn't carried to term and is not born. And it's a tragic situation for the parents. They have to go through that. Well, one of the things that Mr. Armstrong taught when explaining the issue of born again and begettle now and being born at the kingdom is that we are begotten by His Spirit, by God's Spirit, through the laying on of hands. We're a spiritual embryo, 
And like a spiritual, like a physical embryo and fetus, we must grow all the way to when we're born. As full sons and daughters into God's family. And if we don't grow, you know, we can be miscarried. Growth is something that pleases God and it's something that He wants. Notice in John chapter 14 and verse 5. John chapter 14 and verse 5. Again, Mr. Dawson was talking about pruning uh, a little while ago. Um, Actually, chapter 15, sorry. John chapter 15. And verse uh, verse 5. I am the vine, Christ says. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. We are here to grow. We're here to bear fruit. We're here to develop. And this reminds us that we're not yet fully grown. We've got to grow. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. God is not wanting to throw any vines in the fire. He wants all to be saved. He desires all to come to repentance and grow. But it's not just up to Him, is it? It's up to us. We are free moral agents. And so we've got to be doing the choosing of whether we're growing or not. But it's pleasing to Him and it glorifies Him and it honors Him when we grow. But if we're already in the kingdom, if we're already born now, what's the point of growth? Why do we need to to grow? We're already there. We're already there. You know, various pollsters have been asking questions uh, questions of Americans about their religious life for decades. We we survey everything, don't we, in this country? It's amazing the things that we survey, but this is one of them. Uh, May 31st, 2018, five things to know about evangelicals in America. Very interesting findings. Uh, this is what uh, Gallup says. From time to time each year, we at Gallup include this self-definitional question in surveys. Would you describe yourself as born again or evangelical? The most interesting finding from our 27 years of tracking this question is the lack of meaningful variation. The 42% of Americans who on average identified as born again or evangelical in 1991 to 95 is little different from the 41% over the past three years. This was written in 2018. The same, virtually the same number of people today identify themselves as evangelical born again as back in 91. 1991. Now, ask yourself the question, has society gotten better or worse in those last 30 years? The same number of people identify as born again. What kind of effect is that having on society? Gallup also says this, since the early 1990s, Americans have become significantly more likely to say they have no formal religious identity and somewhat less likely to say religion is very important in their lives. Despite these trends, the born-again evangelical percentage has stayed constant. In other words, there are a lot of people who believe they're born again, but what good is it doing? Again, this is not to make light of those who really are striving to obey what they understand and striving to live up to a standard that they see in Scripture and to the degree they understand it, they're they're blessed. But by and large, 
is, is thinking of themselves being born again, is it really changing lives? Is it changing society for the better? I think we know the answer. Or is it giving them a false sense of, I'm okay because I'm saved. And I don't need to change. And I'm good enough. And God is going to have to adapt to me, not me to God. They don't say it that way, but you know that's basically the way that modern religion is. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Notice. No, we don't believe we're born yet. And because we believe we're developing and growing and striving to attain to that goal, we keep moving forward. And by understanding that we're begotten now, that helps us to understand where we are in the process. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Philippians 3 and verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. What a contrast to what modern religion says. That as long as you believe, essentially, you're done. Again, they don't say it that Plainly, but when you press them on, do you need to do certain things? Do you need to keep certain commandments? Well, no. But what did Paul say? I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. How important is is it that we understand the, the right concept of born again or begotten? Well, it impacts our life. It impacts how we think about our life. It impacts how we think about growth and where we are and where we're going. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Now, in our case, we all can receive the prize, right? We all can cross the finish line. It's not limited to who gets there first. If that were the case, then Christ wins and we all lose. But thankfully, that's not the way it works. We all win if we cross the finish line. He says, run in such a way that you may obtain it. For everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we do for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body, bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. I remember um, one year when I was in high school and I was enjoying uh, high school athletics. I was playing soccer, terrible soccer player, but... But uh, I enjoyed running around, and um, you know when you're when you're in a sport, you're you're in better shape than you are other times. Let's just put it that way, and uh, and you're always watching what you're eating. You you think I can't eat junk food because I'm going to pay for it tomorrow. I'm going to feel it when we're running laps. So you're very very careful. Well, I had a season-ending in, injury when I was a freshman in high school playing soccer. I was done. My knee my knee uh, went out. I was done for the season. And, you know, my first thought was, this is horrible. But over the next several weeks, I found, wow, I can eat everything I want now. I was eating like there was no tomorrow. Ice cream, cookies, cake, whatever. No inhibitions. 20 pounds later... One month later, I found, wow, it really matters. We are temperate in all things. And if we have a goal that we're striving for, and if you take away that goal, and if you take yourself out of the training mode, it affects your life, doesn't it? And if we feel like we are born again now, it affects our life. Now, is it all... Our work? No. 
Christ does it in us, Philippians 2.12. I'll just read it. It says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. We know that it's not us that are earning our salvation. We, we understand that. But unless we grow, we're not going to be there. So, knowing we're not yet born, but are seeking to be born in the future, at that time when we will be perfected, we will have overcome, we will be inheriting all things, that gives us a reason to get up and fight the battle tomorrow, doesn't it? And how important is that? Reason number two why it matters. Reason number two why the born-again issue matters. We want the real born-again experience. We want the real born-again experience. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, as I mentioned before, there are a lot of people out there who are sincere, who have sincerely given their lives go over to God as they understand Him, to the degree they understand Him. And again, they're blessed to that degree that they follow the principles that He has laid out in His Word. But all too often, part of that experience is confusion over the born-again experience. You've heard about this. Maybe some of you in a former life uh, went through this process, the born-again experience. And yes, when you, when you commit to something and, and you have a relationship with God to the degree you understand Him, yes, there's a certain experience there, undoubtedly. And everybody wants to feel empowered and changed and, and different. And to some degree, many do change to some degree. But brethren, when we understand what the real born-again experience is going to be like, anything in this life is, is a very, very small, cheap counterfeit. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. What is the real born-again experience? Yes, our, our decision to commit our lives to God is pivotal. Yes, our decision to be baptized, to have our sins removed, to have hands laid on us is an unforgettable time in our life. And again, we're going to be acknowledging that at the Passover very soon. But all of these decisions ultimately will lead to the real born-again experience, a time when we won't be flesh. A time when we will see the unseeable. A time when we will no longer hurt from aches and pains and be subject to sickness and disease and death. A time when we will rise to meet Christ in the air. We talk about that again in the Holy Days on the Feast of Trumpets. What will that born-again feeling be like? To rise to meet Christ in the air. Romans chapter 8, in verse, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Notice even in the language, Paul is talking about there's something that has to be revealed. There's something yet to come. We're not fully there yet. We haven't yet fully become full-born sons and daughters. Yes, we're, we're, we're children right now. Ask any mother who has a baby in the womb whether she considers that baby, that living being, her child. And uh, if you don't think it's a child, she'll slap you, right? I remember one of our uh, children was, was uh, still in the womb, and I told my, my wife, I, I'm just really looking forward to when the baby arrives because it, it's just not real until, until that, uh, that baby is born. Just not real. She looked at me and said, it's been real for months for me. <laughs> and it's getting more and more real every day. I said, oh yeah, that's right. That's true. That makes sense. Romans chapter 8 and verse 
20. For the creation was subject to, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Brethren, there is something coming that is so great and that is so wonderful that the whole creation is groaning and, and waiting. And, and this is the language that Paul uses. It's like the whole creation is, is yearning for that moment when the sons and daughters of God are revealed. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Isn't it interesting the analogy he uses? The physical representation he uses, birth pangs. Birth pangs. And don't we feel that in our life as we have trials? Birth pangs leading up to the time when we will be given eternal life. And isn't this world experiencing birth pangs leading up to the time when Christ will intervene and He will set up His kingdom. And it will be seen. And there will be saints who enter it. That's the born again experience. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption. Actually, sonship. It's not a, just adoption. We are literally going to be His sons and daughters because He is putting His Spirit in us. We are a part of Him. The redemption of our body. For we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with perseverance. How true. If we already see it, then what is there to hope for? If we're already experiencing, then what is the point? You know, brethren... When we think about the joy that we will have when we see all those who have gone before us, loved ones in the faith, those who have gone to sleep, brethren and friends and family, and it's not that far off. As each day goes by, we can see it's not that far off. And we will be literal brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our elder brother and master, whom went first into the kingdom, and we will follow. What a joy that will be when we think of all those who have gone before us that we miss terribly and we'll be reunited with them. As well as all kinds of people that we've never met, that we've read about, and that we haven't read about. But we'll get to know their, their stories. We'll get to know them. And we'll look each other in the eye and we'll know that we made it. We'll know that we persevered. We'll know that we went through the trials and we overcame. What an incredible moment that will be. We just must not give up. And we must keep yielding ourselves to Him. We must keep Staying with the program. And the holy days remind us of the program, don't they? John chapter 16 and verse 20. John chapter 16 and verse 20. On the final night of Christ's life, when he was about to give up his life for us, notice what he said. There are so many things that he explained at that time to his disciples. <clears throat> but notice what he said. In verse 20, John chapter 16, Most assuredly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He was talking about his death. He was talking about what was going to happen the very next day. They didn't fully understand it yet, comprehend it. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, 
and your joy no one will take from you. Isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ used the analogy of being born to describe His own death and resurrection and even to describe the fact that they were going to have the joy when they see Him again just like a parent has when a baby is born. Just like a mother has when a baby is born. I've been there for our children when they were born. And I, I can't say that I have given birth to children, but my wife has. And I've been there. And what an incredible experience. How much tribulation up to that point, how much pain, how much uh, just have to get through it, learning lessons, but at that moment, wow. Wow. A new life. Brethren, we've established some rock-solid truths about this issue of born again. What are they? Number one, genau can be translated either born or begotten. Number two, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. We see that several times, a couple of times. Number three, Christ taught that we will be born into the kingdom. Number four, the pagans themselves believed they were reborn now. That's where those ideas come from in this life. They were reborn now. Number five, the translators just followed that same line of thinking and let their bias affect their translation of these phrases. And why does it matter? Because we've got to have a sense of urgency that we need to grow, just like that baby in the womb. And why does it matter? Because we are seeking for the real born-again experience, entrance into Eternal life, the thing we've been hoping for and waiting for and pursuing however long we've been walking this way with Christ. This whole concept is taught by God's holy days. We'll be revealing, re- reviewing that here in a few weeks. And what a, what a great time that will be when the season of the holy days comes and we can continue to learn about that because they are so rich and that's what we'll review at the Holy Days. Brethren, it's the matter of born again is not a semantic matter. It's not just an academic thing. It's not just striving about words. It's vital and fundamental to our understanding of our life and our destiny and what we're doing and why we're getting up every day and fighting another battle. Let's be gracious, grateful for this precious truth about this issue, that we've been begotten now, but will be born at the resurrection to glory in God's family forever.